Hey, everybody. This is Isaac, co-creator of the Magdalene Podcast Network and host of this first season of the People's Commentary on the Book of Ruth. So excited that you've decided to subscribe to the feed uh, on wherever you get podcasts. Shout out to the awesome people at Create Media who are producing this with us. Let me tell you a little bit about what the People's Commentary is all about. Our goal is to bring biblical commentary back to the people for the sake of our common life. In each season, a different group of people will provide commentary on one book from the Bible through the lens of their relevant lived experiences. We know there's a group of young progressives trying to figure out a way to have a faith that doesn't necessarily look like the faith of their parents. And we are making space for regular people, especially marginalized groups and unheard voices, to engage with the history of the church and view scripture in a way that is relevant to their own lives without needing to go to seminary or have a PhD to contribute. So this first season is a commentary on the book of Ruth, and we have two very special guests on it. I host the uh, commentary, and I'm talking about Ruth with Maria Chavalon suit an indigenous asylum seeker living in sanctuary in Charlottesville, Virginia, and Donna, a formerly undocumented Filipinx immigration activist also in Charlottesville. Maria and Donna and I first met when I was the pastor of Wesley Memorial United Methodist Church in Charlottesville, and Maria, who is an asylum seeker in the United States from Guatemala, was given a deportation notice by ICE in absentia. So she was ordered to leave the country, even though she was legally here seeking asylum in this place to escape ethnic persecution that she experienced in Guatemala. And so she came to live in my church under a thing called the Sensitive Locations Document uh, signed during the Obama era. Undocumented immigrants in the United States are allowed to be at churches, hospitals, and schools without fear of being deported from those places by ICE. And so Maria came to live with us while she fought for her rights in court, and she's been living there ever since. She has an incredible story, and she's an incredible person. So I encourage you to connect with her story on Hands Off Maria on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and support her campaign. We've got some links in the show notes for how you can financially support Maria if what you hear from her inspires you. I can't wait for you to hear what she has to say because this is one of the only indigenous commentaries on um, a book of scripture that I'm aware of and certainly one that you uh, she brings a perspective to the text that you've never heard before. And then there's my friend Donna who began that work in Sanctuary with us She's a seasoned activist for, has been about the work of the people for decades and uh, is also a lapsed Roman Catholic. So she's coming at this from a different perspective than, than me or even Maria because she's, uh, and considers herself sort of an outsider to the church. And, and she likes, uh, her perspective in the pod is, is all about sort of naming a lot of the ways that the Roman Catholic Church and Christianity in general in America puts pressure and burdens on uh, migrants in this country. She's doing a lot of deconstructing work on the podcast that many of our listeners can identify with as well in their journey. So one more program note, when you hear um, Maria is not an English speaker, well, she's learning and, and she's not even a native Spanish speaker. Her original native language is a Mayan language from Guatemala. So Spanish is her second language. 
But this interview, these these sessions were conducted with an interpreter, Luis Oyola, who does a fantastic job. But that means that uh, for clarity and and for uh, ease of access, we have edited Maria's speaking parts within the podcast to sort of shorten them and removed sections where the interpreter translates English into Spanish to make it easy for everyone to listen to. And we just want to acknowledge that before you listen. So our goal is not to erase Maria's voice, but to elevate Maria's story and give her a platform to help us understand the book of Ruth and examine our own lives in new ways. So you'll hear her begin a thought and then you'll hear Luis take over with the translation, but know that that was happening sort of simultaneously throughout the recording process. And we hope this is an easy way for you to audibly process everything that you're hearing. Without further ado, then, let's start the people's commentary on the book of Ruth. So excited that that you're listening to this, and I really hope you enjoy what you hear. Okay, it is May 28th, 2020, and we are in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, and I want us to go around the room and introduce who's here and talking. So this is Isaac Collins. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm a Methodist pastor. Eh, buenos días a todos. Mi nombre es María Chavalán Sut. Hi, everybody. My name is María Chavalán Sut. I am an indigenous woman. I am a Maya Cachiquel, originally from Guatemala. Um, and I am here in Sanctuary at the Methodist Church in Charlottesville. Hi, everyone. My name is Donna. Um, I am an immigrant and mother from the Philippines. Um, I've lived here in the U.S. for almost 30, no, 40 years now. (laughs) And have lived here in Charlottesville for the last um, 21 or so. Hi, my name is Luis Oyola. I use he, him. I am originally from Puerto Rico. I have been living in Virginia for the past 11 years, and I am the interpreter for this conversation. So we are uh, starting a project today. It's an experiment in uh, having a conversation about the book of Ruth from the Old Testament. And I want to talk first about interpreting scripture and what you what your experience is with that talking about the bible in public and sort of what you're bringing to the idea of doing that together eh, para mí mm, hablar sobre la biblia en público so you know speaking of the bible publicly you know the bible is a very thorough book and you can apply it to a lot of things and you know migration is one of the things that you can talk about and it brings it up a lot in the book Maria, in Guatemala, can you do lay people, non-clergy, uh, sit down to study the Bible together? Do you remember doing that as a child, or is you know what experience do you have um, sitting down and, and reading the Bible in a group like this from your culture? Mm, sí, todo el tiempo. Yeah, all the time. What does that look like? And pues es a lot of the elders, especially a lot of family patriarchs, would, would gather together 
Um, and they follow, you know, they like to follow the letter by the book and try to apply it to current life. So I think for me growing up as a pastor's kid, it was always kind of something that I was expected to know how to talk about <laughs> just innately. But now as, but I think that like a lot of American Christians, I didn't really feel like I had a strong understanding of how to read it until I uh, began pursuing ordination in the Methodist church and went to seminary. I think that one of the things that, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to Maria and Donna about this, uh, about Ruth is because the Bible is about experiences of God. And I feel like too often people mistrust themselves and think my experience can't, you know, has it can't help me say anything about the Bible or because I am not a scholar, I, I have nothing to say about it. But what we learn from this text and what I hope we learn from this conversation is that the experiences of the people around us can open up the Bible in ways that don't require academic training. So in some ways, this for people listening, this is a uh, a call to sort of trust yourself and and trust your lived experience when coming to the text. And sometimes that doesn't mean that like we're going to have it's not always going to be a positive reaction to what we read. As Maria said, the Bible is a complex text, but it means that whatever the reaction, what we've experienced in life and what we see in the world will help us have some relationship to it. Eh, sí, para leer la Biblia, eh, pues uh, allá con nosotros cuando uno va a la rezo. So, so, you know, back home, the people when the people go to Bible study, it's the catechist that does the uh, interpretation of the Bible. Um, we don't have a pastor. We don't. Ha we don't usually have uh, uh, a father, um, and so um, you know it is the catechist who do, does it, and they do it actually in Kachiker because that's the language that people speak. So Maria, you can. You've been reading the Bible in two different languages so far, and you've you've uh, been working on studying it in, in English a little at the church. Do you think that knowing the text in different languages like that shapes the way that you read it differently than, say, somebody who just speaks English or reads English? Es la misma, pero diferente forma de decir la palabra para que la persona que lo uh, el oyente lo entienda. Mm -hmm. It's it's the same word. It's just you know told in a different way, just so that the listener can understand. Maria, I know that you also have a text that's important to your Mayan roots, the Pupu Bull. First off, can you tell us a little bit about what that text is, and then do you see similarities or differences between it and the Bible? Um, pues en el Popol Vuh está es parecido a la Biblia. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the Popolu, there is also a creation story and the creation of a perfect being. Um, and there is also a God that oversees everything. That sounds like similar themes. Is, is the writing like, you know, the Bible has chapters and verses and sometimes it's poetry and other times it's letters. Is, does, it, does the Popolu have different genres like that or is it uh, a different kind of text? Uh, pues sí, lo que se quiere es que llegue el mensaje a, 
Yeah, I mean, it's a similar intention with the Popol Vuh to like have to impart certain morals on people and to send a message to them, and, and the expectation is to for them to put it in practice. So, Donna, you've had ex- experiences in like sort of Roman Catholicism and two countries, and certainly you see you are in spaces with a lot of American Christians who may or may not know the Bible that well. Do you see like did you have a similar experience with as Maria growing up with learning how to interpret the text or tell us a little bit about your background and all this? I was so young when I first came here to the U.S. I don't remember my experiences in the church prior to coming here. And I believe my experiences are actually in three different countries, you know, because I was born in Spain and then was sent back to the Philippines to live with my grandparents and then back to Spain when I was, I think, four or five for a year or two before we moved to the U.S. Our Catholicism was very important in our family. And so I, I do know that, you know, wherever we were, we were always a part of the Catholic Church. Um, but all of my memories of the Catholic Church are here in the U.S. and specifically in Norfolk, Virginia. And, and that part about Norfolk, is, I, for me, is really important because there is a very large Filipino community. Uh, Filipinex community in Norfolk. And so I, and I went to a very large Catholic church. Um, I think on most Sundays, there were probably three, four, five hundred people in attendance. And in my mind, everyone around me was Filipino. (laughs) Yes. And, and my family is my immediate family, you know, my siblings and my parents is a very large family. And so, just a lot of Filipinos. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, we went to church on Sundays pretty regularly. And, you know, I was a kid who grew up saying my prayers every morning when I woke up, saying my prayers every night before I went to bed. We went to Sunday school. After church every Sunday. And so it was a really big part of my life, but it was only a big part of my life when we were in church. We didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about our Catholicism outside of church, not in my family anyway. I I think the the expectation of my parents was that we their children would figure out how to apply what we were learning in church and in Sunday school and, and apply it, you know, ourselves without them having to talk to us about it. I mean, I don't know. I've never really talked to them about why we didn't talk about these things at home. And, and then basically we were punished if we didn't, you know, and then they would say things sometimes about how this is like behaviors that they didn't like in us were 
against our religion or against what we should know about how we should behave as Catholics. Maria, do you have a thought for me? Pues yo crecí en la montaña, entonces no. So I was raised in the mountains, and so we really only went out for prayers, every prayer circle every once in a while. Um, but our God wasn't a punishing God. So the Bible, you know, when, when re- the, the religion came to us, um, it really only f- filled certain things for us because we already had our own knowledge about existence. We already had our own um, beliefs around, you know, the existence of trees, the existence of insects. And so the Bible really, out of 10 things, the Bible helped us understand three of them. So I, I see a, a really important difference here in our experience because I, I agree with, with Donna that a lot of American Christians have this experience of kind of like, okay, here's an hour or two on Sunday and better hope that it lasts for the other six days of the week where we, but we, we aren't taught in church to look at the world as like full of these signs of God's presence, the way that Maria is describing that is already sort of inherent in her culture. It's, I think it's part of the difference in how we, you know, sort of the disconnect between American people and, and creation and, and uh, what Maria is describing living in the mountains of Guatemala growing up. We weren't taught to see God's presence in nature the same way that Maria was growing up. So there's this like almost two spheres for American Christians in a lot of ways that, whereas for Maria, you know, the Bible filled in only a few gaps you know, for American Christians, the there's like Sunday morning and then this massive gap of, you know, those other 10 points, they're not full for us in the way that Maria described. Sí, y una, yeah. una, <laughs> yeah. sí. Yeah. Y yo, mi experiencia aquí en la iglesia, aquí adentro. So, yeah, I, I see that difference, um, you know, here in the church in, in the U.S. Um, because back in Guatemala, you know, when you go to church and, and you hear the sermon, um, it seems like everybody just sort of understands uh, what their role is and based on the sermon and what they should be getting out of the sermon. Um, whereas here people have, people take all sorts of things out of, uh, out of sermons, but you know, God can um, uh, uh, forgive a lot of things. He's not a punishing God. So um, getting back to the, I mean, so I think that just Donna, I want to ask you about this, but you know, Maria was talking about, you know, out of 10 things, the Bible helped her people understand like three because they already had this very comprehensive worldview that was connected. Um, I think for American Christians, what happens when we have that, like maybe, you know, Sunday morning is one thing and then the other nine things get filled up by, by nationalism, by capitalism, by whatever else. Like, what do you... Did you experience some of that, like especially as an immigrant coming in? Like, you know, what were the expectations around in your family or in your in your church about what would fill those other nine things, and were they tied at all to how to act and and move through this sort of American culture? 
you know, uh, my experience with Catholicism is that, you know, Catholicism for me had to do with a, a lot of shame. You know, the understandings that I came away with from church and from Sunday school is that, you know, we're, we're all sinners and, you know, God is always watching and every, everything you do, if it's not according to the teachings of the Bible is a sin. And, you know, you, you were always made to feel bad about any thought or any words or any deeds that were any way, you know, outside of those teachings. So in my experience, there was no room for anything other than constantly second-guessing everything I thought and did in accordance to what I understood God wanted me to think and do. And, you know, so that just goes back to you know, how, how I experienced um, these teachings in my family, you know, outside of church, they, they knew what we were being taught in church and they knew like how, how we were made to feel, you know, ashamed of, of, of ourselves. And so that, that expectation was that you would use that shame to guide how you behave. Pues mi experiencia es, um, uh, es diferente o muy especial. So maybe my experience is different or very special. Porque eh, yo sabía, o sea, nosotros sabíamos desde un principio. Because we knew from the beginning that this religion was imposed on us. That, you know, we are a perfect creation and, and we can ask God for things and he will bring them to us to us. Lo, lo único, creo yo, lo sagrado que trajeron. And and I believe the the only sacred thing that the that they brought with them really is the sacred text in and of itself and and the teachings that it has within it. And so the the people that brought it the Spanish they 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 brought these teachings but they themselves did not follow it. Pues eso lo teníamos nosotros siempre presente. And, and so they, they would tell us, you know, uh, kind of like what Donna is saying, that th there is a God that even if you were to like bury, bury yourself underground in a clay pot, there was a God that could see everything you were doing. And so, but we would ask God to, you know, guide us towards perfection and to not do the same damage to others that the Spanish did to us. And so that's the God that I grew up with is a God that guides you and teaches you, not a God that punishes you. And, and you, we don't even know if God is a man or a woman. And so, you know, God is more like a, a mother or a father to their child um, who sort of takes them by the hand and takes them to where they need to go and it doesn't punish them. When I went to, when I moved to the city, I was enrolled in a Catholic school when I was 14. I had to go to confession with the uh, father at the 
at the church. But when I would go to confession, um, instead of confession, I felt like I was just in confrontation with with the pastor because um, he he would just tell me about how I need to change according to the Bible. And I was, I would tell him, you know, at that time, the civil war had just started. So I would tell him what, what change is there? This is the change that you have brought. Y me dijo, uh, que, que solo vea lo... And so the, the pastor would tell me, you know, um, you need to look at the positive things about Jesus and, and, and focus on that. But, you know, we would just have these confrontations and, And that's how, you know, the, the confession was. And I would, and I would try to, um, to stand up to him. That's the God that would, because, you know, I, I would tell him that's not the, the knowledge that I grew up with. The knowledge that I grew up with is that, you know, there, we don't have, we don't have control over all these things that happen to us. We're not, this, this is not, um, All these things that happen to us are not um, because of, of us individually. Um, you know, this, and so the, we shouldn't feel this guilt and we shouldn't feel this shame. Um, and, and that's not what God wants, wants us to feel. So this God that the Catholic religion imposes on us is just not what I grew up with. So, um, Maria, that's, a pretty powerful example of how experience your experience had like was so deeply grounded for you that when you heard a theology that was harmful to you, you used what you knew about yourself and, and what your, what you would learn growing up to kind of push back against it. Sí. Y, y pues, eh, igual. And so, you know, yes, that's, that's been, my experience with many religions even you know like the that like evangelists they will come to me and tell me you know accept christ accept christ but i believe you know christ is just an example of how you follow you know his father's word there is no sort of one religion that um does it the right way um and yeah So I, I think it's interesting that, you know, the, the context you're talking about Maria and Guatemala is a result of a migration, one in, in history where, you know, colonizers from Spain migrated to Latin America, bringing this text with them. The, you know, the book of Ruth came with them in those, in that, you know, amalgam of violence and, and, uh, claiming the land that you lived on. And, and so it, it's a reminder that while, you know, migration can mean so many different things and that you're, you know, the Bible came to your people first through this example of a very violent type of, of migration. Sí. Trajeron yeah. mucha violencia. They brought a lot of violence. Sí. Entonces, um, deberían de... And so, you know, when it comes to religion, um, These these Spaniards they they did all of this this they did a lot of damage and they but the Bible doesn't say anywhere that you must do harm to others and that you must discriminate against others and this really applies universally you know it doesn't matter 
your religion. This is this is what the Bible is saying. It's it's just, it's not something that is tied to any particular religion. This is just a, a message that like you you should not harm others and you should not discriminate. Yeah, and I just uh, feel like I, I would be remiss in not acknowledging that that same experience of Spanish colonization in Guatemala and and how you know the bible was brought there is identical to how the philippines you know experiences the christian religion um that it was through spanish colonization that was also very violent and that that colonial experience um extends to this day but under the colonial rule of the united states I, I think it's um, important to say that we bring all of that history to the text when we sit down to read it, whether or not we are aware of it. That's informed the people who taught us how to read and informed the people who taught them how to read. And and it's a reminder that that we can, in our reading, either propagate that violence or or try to peel it back and... and um, and undo it and, and unmask it in the way that we read and, and through conversation with people who read differently than us. Interpretarlo de buena manera y no al... cuando interpretan... And so, yes, we must interpret it the, in a good way, um, you know, because I've seen a lot of pastors who interpret it through this lens of violence, um, especially from when I was 14 years old and, and onward. Um, which is absolutely not the way that I experienced it growing up before then. Um, you know, because even to this day in, in my village, the Bible is still studied in Kachiket and it's still studied through a catechist. And the catechist doesn't try to impose their own worldview on, on those who come to the Bible study, um, but rather the, the worldview of nature. Um, and he doesn't, they, they don't impose what their own beliefs are, what their own interpretation, but rather open discussion. And people will say, you know, this is, this is how I see the, the Bible. This is how I experience it. And, and they validate it. And, and they say, you know, this is how I feel like I'm being weak. And, and that's how it's discussed. That's how, that's the right way to do it. I, I want to get to the text. Let's start off by talking about this very first phrase in the days when the judges ruled. It um, gives us a historical context when there was no king in in Israel. The people uh, were ruled by judges who were appointed at certain times by God. It sort of um, means that the Book of Ruth is taking place during the book of Judges as well. I just want to read the last verse of the book of Judges because it, uh, I can find it. Okay, so the final verse, this is the thing that comes right before the beginning of Ruth. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. So that can be doing what's right in your own eyes can be a good thing, but can also be a bad thing. And I think that it starts off for Elimelech and his family as being 
a not good thing. So let's talk about that first verse. What stands out to y'all in the um, the very first verse of Ruth 1? Pues sí, yo entendía de los jueces. Dije yo, ¿qué serán los jueces? Entonces no existía. So one thing that stood out for me is, is this thing about the judges, because I thought to myself, well, maybe they don't have any government. And, and you know, that, that could be a good thing. Like we have in Guatemala, the, even to this day, there are some areas that are ruled by elders' councils. Mm-hmm. Y en cada familia, eh, a la fecha todavía, el más respetado es el más anciano, porque tiene mucha experiencia, ya lo ha vivido. Te puede dar consejo y es el más respetado. And in many families, to this day, um, the most respected person is the oldest person because they're the ones that have the most experience, that have lived through the most, and and so they're the they're the most respected. Yeah, uh, it's interesting you say that because we see Naomi sort of be that for Ruth after Elimelech dies. Ruth, you know. Ruth and Naomi have the relationship that, that you just described. Sí. Yes. En, a la fecha, en el área indígena es... Uh, and so in, in Guatemala, especially in the indigenous areas, when you marry um, the man and the woman equally, their families merge. And so, for example, your, the person who would be your mother-in-law Um, you don't refer to them by name, you refer to them as your mother. Um, so th- this is not the case with the mestizos, uh, who are the non-indigenous. Uh, they might refer, they might still refer to her as the mother-in-law. And, you know, they're just seen as, as your blood when you marry. So the first thing that we hear is that there's a famine in the land and a man from Bethlehem uh, goes to the country of Moab with his wife and two sons. So the, the migration in the story begins with the inability to get food and, you know, a lack of resources. And that uh, it's especially important that he's from Bethlehem because that's where most of um, the country's grain was grown. So, you know, Bethlehem means house of bread in Hebrew. So if they couldn't find food there, then The famine was really bad. The other, the other piece of context here, though, is that Moab is a place where um, the Jewish people were did not want to go. They have a long history of enmity with the people of Moab because when the Jewish people were um, migrating to the Promised Land, they were in the desert in the region of Moab, and the Moabites would not give them water. So that lack of hospitality, because of that, God commanded the uh, Jewish people to never intermarry with the Moabites. And Moses um, goes as far as to say in, to the people that no Moabite can ever come into the covenant of God because they refused to show hospitality to the people when they were in need um, in their migration. And so the the original hearers of this text would have been scandalized by their decision to leave Bethlehem, the seat of promise to go to this land where these people um, are known for their inhospitality and are cursed in, in the eyes of the Jewish people for that. Pues es esa parte donde 
cuando uno lee la Biblia es um, donde se ve que, que ellos no actuaron bien. Y es, I mean, that, that's, that's one part of the Bible because that is interesting because, uh, you know, you see all these people doing wrong and then uh, Jesus comes and sort of changes mm -hmm. things. It's interesting that you bring up Jesus, Maria, because this is a story about um, his ancestors, Ruth and, and Naomi. Without this story, they so um, Ruth becomes the great grandmother of David, who is uh, who Jesus is related to many, many generations later. But um, this is a story where that family line is in danger of ending without um, the boundary lines between the Moabites and the Jewish people being redrawn. Sí, pues Jesús trajo el cambio. Y, um... uh, and so, you know, Jesus' teachings were certainly different. Um, but, you know, in a certain way, I feel like Jesus must have taught in, in our lands of, of Guatemala because our people, you know, when the Spanish came or really when any visitor comes, we welcome them with open arms. We take care of them. We leave our doors open. Um, doesn't matter who they are. And, so, and, and, and part of it is that we read the Bible and we, we see stories like these and we, and we see, you know, even if this is happening, happened in another land in another time, um, this applies to us. And so we must, we must not be like this. So uh, moving forward into verse two, we see that, you know, we, we kind of had the, the names of the family delayed and now it gets, his, it gets its own sort of special focus. We hear the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. There's this repetition of sort of the opening verse, you know, it, it's telling us again, like, here are these, um, you know, Judeans who are going to go and, and stay in, in Moab and remain there. And yet, they're also the, like, each of these names has a particular meaning. So Elimelech, the name means my God is king, and Naomi means um, sweetness. And but their children's names, uh, Malon means sickness, and Kilion means end of the line. So it, in some ways, the um, author is is using the children's names to kind of foreshadow what's about to happen <laughs> to and them. Sí. Uh -huh. It's not going to turn out well when your name is sickness. <laughs> sí, así es. Um, por eso. Yeah, and, and the same is back home. You know, when when children are born, we we think through really hard what their name is because their name names have power. What sort of power, Maria? To say more about that. So I'll I'll talk about me as an example. So okay. my my name, my dad chose it um, in honor of my grandmother. Que es Maria which is Maria. Mm -hmm. uh, although when the Ladinos, which is the white people of Guatemala, mm -hmm. um, uh, when, when they uh, make fun of us and uh, of us indigenous people, they actually use the name Maria to, as a sort of slur even. They'll say Maria, Maria. So while they use it as a slur for us, it has a different meaning because Maria is, is the queen of the heavens. She is the, the mother of Jesus, she rules over everything. So, uh, you know, for us, it has a very powerful meaning, um, even if the white people don't use it that way. Well, I have, I have a question. Um, so, 
who were who were the original people of Israel? Like the territory or like the people themselves, like the ethnic group? I guess both. So the, los dos. I mean, so the, right if mm, so if we're talking about, you know, the the people themselves, they the story that the Bible tells is that um it's a lineage that begins with Abraham, passed down to Isaac and then Jacob, and Jacob has twelve sons that form twelve tribes uh in Egypt and then they're enslaved there and um those tribes come out. And so it, when you hear like Bethlehem and Judah, Judah is the name of, of one of Jacob's sons. And that's the territory where his tribe sort of sets up um, their, their family, like lives there and, and moves from there. And so Judah um, is where, you know, in ancient times is where Jerusalem is. Bethlehem is near there. And each of these 12 tribes is descended from each one of these sons and actually ironically enough, they go to Egypt because of a famine uh, that's they migrate there. And then that leads to all of this story. But so at this time they're still living in sort of tribal societies based on that lineage that comes down from each of these sons. There's no monarchy in Israel yet. That hasn't happened. It's still four generations away and it's still like a, uh, an agrarian society, not like, not as advanced into sort of um, monarchic, monastic, or no, not monastic, monarchical civilization in the way that, say, like Egyptian society is at the time, or Assyrian or Babylonian to the to the east of them. So before Moses brought people to the Promised Land, there wasn't anyone there. No, that I mean. So the land of Cana. I mean, part of this story is that. They, um, yeah, when when they leave Egypt and come back to Cana, there are people there, and yeah, they fight a a big war with them over control of that land, and that kind of continues on um, for a very long time. But that that moment of entering the land of Cana and sort of kind of claiming territory there is multiple generations prior to Ruth, and that system has kind of fallen apart and. That's part of what the the book of Judges is um, signifies is the unity between the tribes at that time had kind of fallen apart, and um, you know the each of the each of these family units find themselves like that's the major way that they survived. It wasn't like oh we're um, standing up as one people. The sort of ethnic identity of like we're all one Israel or whatever isn't isn't operating in in this particular moment. Okay, I, yeah, I just was curious about that, you know, just trying to think about how these opening lines um, might have, might, may or may not be analogous to my experiences and understandings of migration in the current time. Y pues sí, eh, estoy curioso sobre eso por por mis experiencias con la inmigración. Eh, en, por medio de estas primeros versículos. Do you see any similarities or differences? ¿Ves alguna similidad, similaridad o diferencia? Well, I mean, I think just uh, that, you know, um, there's just so many examples throughout history, throughout the history of humanity that of 
of people needing to travel uh, in order to get their basic needs met. But, you know, as a, you know, for me, I, I have a lot of interest in what that the political context may be. Just, just thinking about who has a right to migrate and where people have a right to migrate to and who gets to make those decisions. And so I, you know, so that's, that's why I'm asking, you know, about that, that context in, in the book of Ruth, um, because I'm not familiar with it, that, that political context. Yo pienso que todos, um, todos los seres humanos, incluso los animales, uh, well, I believe that all human beings have a right to migrate. Um, you know, in that's why in our culture we we even welcome the Spanish to to come and and we try to treat them well. Um, you know, it, all all human beings, including animals, have a right to migrate because in even in in nature you can see that um, animals, uh, depending on the weather, they will migrate to different places and um you know in in our culture we believe that you know mother mother nature is is bear, bears everything and she doesn't limit what what people can do just based on where they are at that moment i mean i think you're right that you're picking up on something that's absolutely there donna that you know the what are the political implications for you know, it may not be a perfect like um, comparison to say modern immigration sort of crossing national borders to this right here, but the the reality of that history of going into Moab, it, it's something that would have instantly sort of turned the hearer, the Jewish first hearer, into saying, "Okay, this is like not going to go well." It's not something that God would would want to see. It, it's something like it's even putting them in danger because what sort of reception are they going to get? You know, they they see the Moabites as these you know um, people who are not going to show them hospitality. Like it, it's setting it up to say this isn't going to end well. And at the same time, that coming back, you know, that we see, it, it's really remarkable how Ruth is received in because she would absolutely be you know, um, viewed in the exact same way when they come back to Bethlehem. And I don't know if Blair, the producer on this, wants to add anything that might be missing from this piece from what we've discussed. But uh, what do you think? Are we giving a, an accurate summary of some of the dynamics here? I, I think uh, this conversation is uh, very uh, much like getting at the complexity of the story. And one thing that can help uh, sort of help us read the story is to think about um, not, you know, the tribes that that, um, Naomi and Elimech are from as being part of greater Israel, but being as one tribe among many tribes. uh, In this case, one that has conflict with Moab. So when they go, we don't get any details about what goes on there, except that uh, pretty quickly, the next thing we hear in verse three, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi died 
and she was left with her two sons. Um, and I think that it's pretty fair to say that some readers of this would have been like, well, clearly this is God's judgment on them for going to Moab. Like they brought this on themselves, in other words. Pues no dice ahí detalles. Uh, de todos modos, todos los seres humanos um, morimos. So while it doesn't have any details, um, you know, we know that all human beings die. Um, so, you know, because everybody dies at some point and we don't know the details, um, you know, we can't just assume that it was a judgment of God. Um, he might have just died just because people die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's totally right. But I think that part of the scandal of the text is inviting that idea. You know, it, it's it's like, it's playing against um, prejudices that the reader might have to say, oh, well, this is what happens when you go to Moab. And I think sometimes those, like, you know, the, there can be those stigmas around migration, like, oh, well, you know, this this is just what happens. Like, if you run into trouble, um, this is just what happens when you do that or something like that. You should have known better. Certainly that is something that Americans say about um, migrants who suffer at the border all the time. Well, they should have followed the rules or they should have stayed home. It, it's playing on a prejudice. It, it's kind of poking at that um, to get that reaction from people. But am I misunderstanding that Elimelech and his family are coming, are like of the chosen people, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, so it's a little different, right? They're they're going into a land of people who are considered not in favor of the, in the eyes of God. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So it's a little different than what you're talking about in, in the context of how how we experience immigration in the United States in modern times. Yeah, I, I agree. It's definitely not a perfect analogy. It's almost like, um, it, maybe it's better to say more like, oh, well, they picked the absolute worst place to go <laughs> rather than like, you know, people who see the United States as like the safest place to go. And yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah, and I, I don't mean to belabor that point. I just, I wanted to make sure I'm understanding who these people are, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So the author is setting setting us up to say, okay, well, you know, um, nothing good is going to come out of this. It's creating that expectation of like, you know, I, of setting up expectations that it then is going to challenge by, you know, Ruth's actions, you know, sort of, it, it wants the reader to sort of feel like, well, Ruth, like what Ruth is about to do, the, the dedication that she shows to Naomi for that to be a surprise to the reader because they have so many sort of um, emotions and prejudices against her. So it's trying to, to gin all of that up so that then when, when Ruth, what she does comes as like, whoa, okay, now suddenly all these expectations are out the window. Yeah, and I, I'm really interested in getting whenever it feels right in the conversation to talking about how Ruth is set up in this story and for me, how I, how I see it as problematic for if, if we're going to apply this story of Ruth to the experience of immigration in the U.S. right now. Roll with it. Go. Yeah. Let's, if, if. You know, so I, it's hard for me to 
read the story of Ruth um, multiple times throughout the text. She's described as, you know, being this good person who works hard and is able to like glean, you know, some exceptional amount of grain from the field that, you know, is not, is more than what people normally are able to glean, that she is this good daughter to her mother-in-law, you know, this level of loyalty that she has to her. And, you know, that in the eyes of the the people, uh, when she arrives with Naomi to the place where she comes from, you know, she's, she's seen as, you know, acceptable. For me, there's, you know, I, I see this, this kind of narrative of the good immigrant reinforced by, you know, allies and advocates, even within the immigrant community of, you know, oh, these people, we, we should allow these people in because they're hard workers, because they're good, because they contribute to the economy, you know, they contribute to even our culture, you know, that they bring culture to us that we can experience as good for ourselves, that we benefit from their presence. And I, and I think that, you know, it's important, it's important to, to bring up the problems of even this, you know, what's considered like a good or generous view of immigration amongst people here in the U.S. who are liberal or progressive. And certainly there's lots of reasons why that point of view, those points of views are, you know, are seen as better than people who don't like immigrants at all and want to kill us or want, you know, want us to go away. But both points of view are dehumanizing. It sets the immigrant up as either good or either bad and doesn't give space for all of the variation of and that any human can can exemplify or or can live and so you know i i see that i i see that in ruth and it makes me uncomfortable or or i see that in the story of ruth and it makes me uncomfortable to to think that oh she was accepted and she you know, as, as, a, as a good daughter and then even as a good wife because she exemplified these, these qualities that are seen as worthy and acceptable. Entonces veo eso dentro de Ruth porque de la Biblia aquí dice que el libro aquí dice que ella es buena esposa y esto por el hecho de que es trabajadora y... y, y y tiene estas calidades de la que estoy hablando. I mean, I, I think that that I'm glad that we are going to bring that out because it's absolutely something we need to talk about. And I mean, I think especially with in conversations I've seen there, there's a difference. There's sort of two types of migrants in the United States: those that we like sort of valorize and those that we invisibilize. And um, certainly, the criminal justice system plays a huge role in that. And and I. I want to just ask if Maria, if she wants to respond to any of this before we have to take a break to, to some of what Donna said. Pues se ve que, que habla de Ruth, que es una buena persona. In my culture, 
So you know, I I definitely see that Ruth is is explained as a as a hard worker and as a good daughter in law to Noemi. Um, in my culture, is is different. If you know, if if for example, in this situation, if the husband were to die, the Noemi would give her daughter in law the um, and the and the children the the freedom to go about their own lives. If if they need to and 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 have their own children, if they need to, and you know they would tell the daughter-in-law, you know, to you can go make your own life because you're young, um, but that you'll always be welcome in this home. And that, you know that is what Naomi says, right? I mean, um, she does try to sort of release Ruth and and Orpa to to start over again, for sure. And yes. um, um, there's even that sort of funny bit where Naomi says, you know, I'm too old to have children. And even if I did, what are you going to wait for them to grow up? (laughs) So this is a good place to put a pin in things to, with this tension kind of drawn out. Thanks for listening to the people's commentary on the book of Ruth. We'll be continuing our conversation with Maria and Donna every Sunday over the next few weeks. And I hope that you will recommend the show to others, subscribe, like, review, all of that stuff helps us get the word out about this work and helps us lift Maria's voice. Remember to check out the show notes for more info about Maria's story and how you can support her in her journey to safely live in the United States. And if you're looking for something a little more irreverent, the Magdalene Network also has a talk show called Until We Get Canceled featuring myself, Carrie Serbaugh, and Brian Bliss. Um, Finally, if you want to help support the show, share it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you next Sunday for another episode on the Book of Ruth. Peace. Peace.